is a pleasure to be here this afternoon for what I'm sure will be an interesting conversation with not my old friend, but my new friend, uh, Reza Aslan. Some years ago, I uh, paid the first visit that I had ever paid to a marvelous scholar of, uh, of Chinese religion named Anthony Yu at uh, the University of Chicago Divinity School. And Tony Yu wrote me a letter afterward uh, quoting a Chinese proverb whose import is something like this. Uh, we've known each other for so long, it's a shame that our first meeting was so delayed. <laughs> Reza and I have had several long uh, conversations with something like that, uh, that mood about them. A story is uh, told about a meeting, unintended, between the Anglican uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and the Roman Catholic <coughs> Primate of London, who accidentally entered the same uh, taxi cab from opposite doors and the cab pulled away before either of them uh, could get out, and they drove along in awkward silence until the Archbishop of Canterbury said, well, Your Eminence, we needn't sit here in silence. After all, we do worship the same God. And then there was a brief pause, and the Cardinal Primate of London said, yes, Your Grace, you in your way, and we in his. <laughs> Relations between these two lords of religion were not helped by uh, the fact that, of course, both were Englishmen, your Englishman being a self-made man who worships his creator. <laughs> Most of us are more like the archetypal Irishman who doesn't know quite what he believed but will willingly die defending it. <laughs> This comes from the generally beleaguered condition of Ireland, but these days we all believe that uh, we are under siege, uh, don't we? Everyone and everyone's group feels that it is the victim group, it is the group most uh, abused by uh, its enemies uh, and the one that has the greatest grievance to bring before the court of uh, public opinion. Are we drifting uh, in this world toward religious war? That's the worst kind of war, isn't it? Because it's the kind uh, most intractable to negotiation. If we surrender to drift, that's uh, where we may end up. But what we are collectively trying to do, I believe, is chart a course that can be a common course. We're in search of what can be a common destination for the populations of our planet. And some of us, are, uh, rather than surrender to drift, are trying to paddle in a direction that can win acceptance. Reza Aslan is one of those. And it's because of that that, uh, that his work has, has received a welcome uh, so warm that it, it, it seems almost a kind of relief. Is there a way to tell the stories that we tell on this planet so that they become intertwining stories, so that they become a common uh, story in which everyone can have an acceptable place. That, I think, is the challenge before us. And to tell the story from this point on means appreciating the story uh, to this point. Reza's uh, book uh, tells the story of Islam from origins to the present, 
but with a vector pointing toward the future, past, uh, present, and future. With a flow, with a narrative flow that, uh, that bespeaks his, uh, his training and his, uh, as a novelist, and I, I venture to say a, novel, a novelist whose first novel you'll soon be reading. This is no mean feat. The history of religion is a story that's very complex and doesn't necessarily lend itself uh, easily even to the skills of an accomplished uh, novelist. But I think he has brought that off in his book. And I'm hoping that in our conversation today, some of what he has brought about can, can be shared with you. And, uh, and then toward the end of the session, we'll, we'll uh, take some questions and, and perhaps uh, find some pointers toward where we'll go from here. The title of the book is no God, but God. And you will notice that the second word begins with a lowercase g and the fourth word with an uppercase g. No God, but God is the foundation statement of Islam. This was the very beginning of the revelation that Muhammad uh, received from God. Our, our picture, I would say, here in the West of the revelation to Muhammad is of a man in a white robe, maybe mounted on a camel or sitting by a campfire, alone in a, in a desert, all by himself, sands blowing about perhaps, and he hears a, a voice uh, from God. Uh, and what the voice says is that there is no God but himself. Well, but what was the situation in fact um, at that time? I mean, can you tell us... Uh, a bit about uh, where Muhammad uh, began. This is a, an excellent question, and I think a perfect place to start the discussion. I just want to begin by uh, thanking you all for being here, and uh, and I feel really guilty. I, I came in a little bit late and had to push my way through the people waiting outside, and and uh, I, there's plenty of room on the stage. I was thinking <laughs> they could perhaps sit here, but I could sit at our feet. It is exactly, um, and I also want to say. Uh, what an incredible honor it is, and, and quite frankly, it's a, it's a little intimidating, too, to be sharing a stage with someone whose work that I've admired and I've been reading for, for so many years, and I can't for the life of me figure out why this is uh, Reza Aslan in conversation with Jack Miles. I feel like I'm, much, I'm far more interested in what you have to say than, than I think any, but I'll, I'll try my best to, to keep up, that's what I'm trying to say here. So, uh, platitudes aside, um, you bring up a very good point because we don't normally talk, even in Islamic studies, we don't normally talk about what pre-Islamic Arabia was. There is this conception, of course, in the Muslim world that uh, this era, uh, an era that Muslims refer to as uh, Jahaliya or the time of ignorance, was an era of moral depravity and, and backwardness and darkness and then like the rising sun, suddenly the Prophet Muhammad appeared and almost in a social vacuum uh, created this religion that we call Islam. But of course, pre-Islamic Arabia, and in particular, the city of Mecca, where Muhammad was born and raised, and in which he preached, was a melting pot of sorts, of not just different cultures and, and ideologies, but more specifically of religions. This was an, a, an area in which 
um, Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians, the pre-Islamic religion of Iran, and a whole host of different what we would refer to as as pagan or polytheistic religious traditions, um, as well as a number of indigenous Arab monotheistic movements uh, coexisted side by side. Uh, it was an era in which these religious traditions, because they were in so, so often uh, removed from their, from their centers, from their geographical centers, uh, whether that be in Palestine or uh, you know, in Rome, what, what have you, uh, had the opportunity for profound religious experimentation. Um, and so we're really talking about a place in which religion was active and, uh, and alive, and it really was the, the perfect setting for someone like Muhammad to arise and to be, be able to fashion this distinctly uh, unique message, but one that is so much a part of the previous messages that had come before him. So this was anything but, I guess what I'm trying to say, a, a time of ignorance and darkness, quite the opposite. However, it was one in which the religious and the social traditions were inextricable. They were, they were absolutely intertwined in, in, in every way, and particularly with regard to the economy. Pre-Islamic Arabia was, after all, the home of the Kaaba, the uh, sort of central uh, religious sanctuary that is still to this day the, the focal point of the Muslim world. But of course, the Kaaba was around for hundreds of years before Muhammad, and it was at this time according to Muslim tradition, a place where it was, it was essentially an Arab pantheon, a place where all the gods of pre-Islamic Arabia resided in one form or another. And that brought an enormous amount of power and prestige to the tribe that ruled over Mecca, the Quraysh. And it had created what I refer to as a religio-economic system, one in which the economy of the city was based upon the religion of the city, the Kaaba, because, of course, if all of the gods of pre-Islamic Arabia reside in this one place, then that means that every tribe in the, in the peninsula would have to, at one time or another, make a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca in order to worship their gods. In fact, it's very important to understand that, that these gods, these individual gods, got to Mecca because they were literally stolen and brought there, so that to force uh, peoples of other tribes to, to come to Mecca. And of course, they would come with their worship and their offerings, but they would also come with their goods and their services. And it created a situation in which the economy of the society was really built upon the religion of the society. They were absolutely one and the same. But in that kind of system, what you have is a situation uh, of great stratification. So those people who are, in one way or another, in charge of the religious infrastructure of society are now also in charge of the economic infrastructure of society, which creates a, a situation in which you have a very small group of people, the, the elites of society, the, 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 the Quraysh hierarchy, uh, who more or less owned everything. And then the second class citizens, which, which primarily were merchants, uh, uh, these were businessmen who had some connection with the ruling elites, and then, of course, the slaves, the servants, the orphans, the unprotected. So you had a religious melting pot, a what we could refer to, I suppose, as an ethnic melting pot, but all intertwined with this 
economic stratification that really left no room for anyone who was not part of this elite. And that, of course, included the Prophet Muhammad. And so when I talk about Muhammad's earlier message, and the reason I gave this prologue about what pre-Islamic Arabia looked like, is because it's important to understand that Muhammad's message was not just a religious message. In fact, I would argue that it wasn't primarily a religious message, certainly not at first. It was a social message. And the very term, there is no God but God, the very profession of faith that really launches the theology of, of Islam, is not just a religious statement, it's a social statement. And it is essentially an attack on the very religio-economic foundation that I was referring to. What Muhammad was saying, essentially, is that the gods in the Kaaba do not exist. And if they don't exist, then there's really no reason for the Kaaba. And if there's no reason for the Kaaba, then there's no reason for all these pilgrims to come here every year. And if there's no reason for all these pilgrims to come here every year, then there's really no foundation left for the economy of society. And it was that distinctly social and economic message that really set him at odds with the ruling establishment, not his religious message. Again, think about it. The idea that there is no God but God, this notion of monotheism, was not unheard of. It was in no way innovative or unique in pre-Islamic Arabia. There were plenty of Christians in Mecca who believed that. There were plenty of Jews in Mecca who believed that. There were plenty of Arabs who believed that. So this idea that there was some religious conflict between the so-called pagan Arabs and the monotheistic Muslims uh, is really a misunderstanding of, of the social circumstances circumstances in that, in that uh, what time. You, uh, what you describe, Reza, in, it seems in some way to, uh, to, bear, to bear comparison uh, with the, the Protestant Reformation uh, in that the, the reformers, of course, didn't introduce Christianity to the world. Christianity was already there, but there were certain economic practices or certain practices that mingled uh, economic uh, uh, profit with uh, with religious belief that they objected to, um, and uh, they wanted, uh, as they saw it, to to go back to um, a corrected version. They wanted to correct the errors that had uh, had crept in over time into Roman Catholic practice. Is, is, is was there something? akin to that in Muhammad's early preaching? Very much so. And I think this goes to the larger issue of uh, prophecy and prophethood. Prophets are not creators of religion. I think we have a tendency to think of them as such. Moses did not invent Judaism any more than Jesus invented Christianity or Muhammad invented Islam. In fact, it's quite often a prophet's successors who are uh, given the responsibility of of transforming the words and the deeds of the prophet into some kind of unified and often institutionalized system of beliefs and practices. What prophets are, are commentators. They are social reformers. They are, their job is to take the existing structure of society, the religious, political, economic, social structure of society, and to reform it, to present a new way of thinking about not just humanity's relationship to God, but our relationship to one another. And this is very much in line with how Muhammad, I think, considered his own prophetic consciousness. Over and over again, the Quran says, this is not a new message. 
This is the same message that was given to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to the tribes of Israel. The same message that was given to John the Baptist and to Jesus Christ. Their God is your God. Their scripture is your scripture. So what Muhammad really saw himself as not as an innovator, as somebody who was giving a new message to, to the world, but somebody who was essentially commenting on the, the message that was already there. A, a reformer, a, a revivalist in, in some ways. And very much in that, in that protestant way. As someone who was saying that not only was the, the so-called pagan structure of, of society um, wrong, but even those Jews and Christians who in Muhammad's mind had uh, gone away from the, the practices and the traditions of Judaism and Christianity, that they needed to be called back. And Muhammad really saw himself in that same prophetic line as someone who calls people back to God. Mm-hmm. The, uh, of course, that simple act of, of calling people back to something that uh, they ought to be believing already or that their, their ancestors believed in uh, properly and they have uh, partially lost sight of can be in context an extremely disruptive one, as you, as you point out, and, and Muhammad uh, was ferociously resisted by those whose, whose religious uh, empire, whose religious uh, and economic system he was uh, calling into question. But then past the point of where the, prof- the prophecy has been delivered and the, uh, the crucial and necessary disruption um, has occurred, there does always come a time of consolidation, that time when the religion, we may say, really is formed, not by the charismatic religious leader himself, but by his followers in some um, configuration. So, for example, in, in Christianity, at least as it, uh, it seems to me, uh, there was uh, the view uh, that Jesus passed on his teaching to his 12 apostles. And they conveyed it around the Mediterranean and became uh, the bishops uh, of the great capital cities of uh, of the Roman Empire as it uh, gradually changed from a an empire practicing Greco-Roman paganism to one whose religion was overwhelmingly Christian. Uh, Where was authority located in this new religion? Well, it was vested in these uh, uh, 12 apostles. That's the view that uh, lives on in Eastern Orthodox uh, Christianity uh, to this day. Alongside it, and with very, very early roots, but in in competition with the view I just described was the view that St. Peter, uh, the leading apostle among the twelve, the one who became, according to tradition, the first pope, was in person uh, the the locus of authority. What did uh, Christians believe? Who should determine that? He should be the one who would determine it and whoever succeeded him in, in that role. So there was a, then a group picture of how authority was exercised and a more personalized picture. It has seemed to me that, uh, that this, uh, this difference in Christianity has an analog um, in Islam 
in the difference between Sunni Islam and Shia uh, Islam, but I'm, I'm talking beyond my expertise here. It's just a guess on my part, and I'd, I'd like you to, to tell me why I'm wrong, Reza, or how I'm half right. And we're, We hear so much, especially now with the war in Iraq taking the turn that it has taken, about Sunni and Shi'i or Shia uh, Muslims. Uh, where did they originate? It's an excellent question and a very important one. You're absolutely right. Um, well, it does originate, of course, in the very same, this, this example that you gave about the uh, dispersal of, of religious authority um, in Christianity. Um, it's, it's one that definitely has its parallel in, in, in the Muslim world. The Prophet Muhammad uh, had a, quite a successful career. I mean, I think that that's something that right away uh, makes a lot of people, especially those who are familiar with the Judeo-Christian conceptions of, of prophethood, scratch their heads. And in fact, for years, that was, I think, the during the, the, the papal propaganda of the, of the Crusades, that was the, the chief uh, proof that Muhammad was not truly a prophet, because if he were truly a prophet, he would have been scourged and killed and defeated and would have been a complete failure, and then later generations would have said, oh, well, you know, how to, but the very fact that he was... As su- happened with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But the very fact that he was successful in, 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 and that his message was en- enormously appealing to, to a great many people and that he died at the, at the height of his powers was an indication that, that obviously this wasn't a message from God because if it was a message from God it would have been rejected, not accepted. Um, so that, that's an interesting paradigm right there. But when Muhammad died, he really made no, he made no statements about not just who would replace him as leader of the community, either religious leader or political leader, because of course he was both in, in, in at that time, but also what kind of community he was leaving behind. He really did not make any kind of, of comment about it at all, and there's a lot of speculation as to why he wouldn't have done so. Perhaps he was waiting for a revelation from God that never came. Perhaps he just wanted the community to decide for themselves uh, what was going to happen uh, upon his death. And so when we talk about this split between the Sunni and the Shia that occurred really at that moment of Muhammad's death, often it's, it's said during the first 12 hours of Muhammad's death is when you had this first split in the Muslim community. We have to separate it in, I think, three different ways. We have to think of it as political, ethnic, and religious. Politically speaking, this was primarily a discussion over who was going to succeed Muhammad, whether it was going to be uh, this popular consensus that the community themselves would decide who would, and by the community, of course, I mean the elders of the community, the decision makers of the community, um, would decide, or whether it would be a, an issue of lineage. For a great many Muslims, the, the natural successor to the Prophet Muhammad was his only remaining blood relative, um, his, his uh, nephew and son-in-law, Ali. Uh, there was this conception that somehow the prophethood that was inherent in Muhammad would be uh, present in his, in his lineage, in his very blood, that very much in the same way that you had the successors in the Bible with Moses and Aaron, etc., etc., 
There were just as many, I think, Muslims who rejected that notion and, and wanted Abu Bakr, who was uh, one of the earliest followers of Muhammad and who represented a different, different clan than Muhammad's. And so at first, this was primarily a political discussion. There was no real religious difference between the Sunni and the Shia. The Shia, of course, representing the party of Ali or the Shiatu Ali. So this is primarily a political discussion. Now, if those of you familiar with Islamic history know that, that the party of Ali lost its cause eventually and became outcasts, social and political outcasts in, in community. And it was only when they really broke away from the mainstream Muslim community that they were shunned and, and their, their uh, beliefs were outlawed, their ideology was outlawed, and, and uh, that they began to refocus some of this political energy into a religious uh, innovations and began to, I think, really redefine themselves, not as a political force, which they were not anymore, but as a religious force. And you had a whole host of different um, and very unique and innovative uh, notions of, of God and, and of Muhammad and of the Quran uh, that arose from this, from this Shia movement. But I, what I really want to emphasize is that, religiously speaking, these were ideas that really existed from the very beginning. I don't want to make it sound as though suddenly there was this new sect and these wholly new ideas that, are, that arose. These were ideas about... You, you know the hidden meaning, the hidden message in the Quran, in the revelations, um, about Muhammad's spiritual connection to to the, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible and to and to God uh, himself. In, in in that sense, there's the spiritual connection of Muhammad um, that really were around from the very beginning, and that only after this this separation in which the Shia, the party of Ali, found themselves ostracized really began to formulate into a new religious identity. And then, of course, there's the ethnic aspect of it. During those first couple of hundred years in which Islam spread from this tiny community of faith in Mecca to the, one, the world's largest empire within a century or so, this was a distinctly Arab conception of, of Islam. In fact, Islam was seen as the property of the Arabs. There, there is this tendency in the West to think of Islam as spreading by the sword. It's a very common perception that conversion was forced upon people and that's why Islam spread so rapidly. Well, strangely enough, the, the opposite is true. Not only was Islam not uh, forced upon the, the populations, the the captured populations, it wasn't even encouraged. In fact, it was actively discouraged because every time somebody converted to Islam, they would have to pay less taxes. And the, the Arab empire, the last thing that they wanted to do was continue to have these hundreds of thousands of people who are constantly converting to Islam and, and they're losing all of this, this um, revenue. So they made it very, very difficult for non-Arabs which, by the way, at a very early stage began to outnumber Arabs uh, within the, the, the kingdom, they made it very difficult for non-Arabs to convert to Islam. You had to essentially become an Arab first. You had to find an Arab tribe that would be willing to adopt you, and then once you became Arab, then you could convert to Islam. And even then, you were still considered a second-class citizen. Well, Shia Islam, this Shia conception of, of what it meant to, to be a Muslim, 
did not have that Arab ethnic identity attached to it. So it became enormously popular and appealing to non-Arab Muslims, particularly those uh, converts from the Sasanian, the Iranian Empire, so the Persians, the Indo-Europeans, the Central Asians. Um, And so Shiism became a force in itself. And as more and more cultures and, and um, ethnicities and, and local traditions began to, to come into Islam, began to convert to Islam, uh, this Shia version of it, the more Shiism began to change. And so essentially what, what is, is very exciting about Shiism as a, as a movement within Islam is that it, it really absorbed a whole host of local uh, traditions and conceptions about God and about religion. And what we now see as Shiism is really the amalgamation of Islam and, and some sort of Central Asian Gnosticism and, and some uh, Indian philosophy and a lot of Persian Zoroastrian conceptions of cosmology. And all of that came together under this guise of of. Of, of a Muslim identity to create religiously now what we refer to as Shiism. So there are three different ways of thinking about the Sunni and Shia split that I think are very important to differentiate. Though, of course, they do in the end uh, combine to make one sort of unique identity within the Shia. Uh, we don't have time to run down the, the full inventory of what uh, those... those uh, differences are between Shia Islam and Sunni Islam that developed uh, over time. Uh, But it might be good if we could talk about uh, one or two. And one uh, that I'm particularly curious about that came to mind just as you were speaking there about how Muhammad made no provision for how uh, the community of his uh, followers would be governed after his death is the idea that the world may be soon to end. Uh, This is commonly asserted with regard to Jesus and uh, even with regard to Paul that that, uh, all provisions for government uh, within their movement were were provisional because it was thought that that the the last judgment was um, at hand uh, and they would all quickly be moot anyway. What was the uh, expectation... uh, in early Islam, Sunni or Shia, about how it would all end? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, Muslim eschatology, this idea of the end times, was really adopted almost in totality from the Christian conception of the end times. In fact, one of the real fascinating things about the uh, the Quran is that the images that it uses, not just to talk about heaven as a garden and as a paradise, but also uh, the images that it uses when it talks about the end times, the blowing of trumpets and the the uh, the rain rain of fire, things like that. Uh, are distinctly Christian images, images that must have been around, must have been prevalent in pre-Islamic Arabia, uh, because the way that they are referred to in the Quran, there is this there is this idea that that the audience is already familiar with these things, familiar with these images, and so Muhammad uses them and and preaches about them. Uh, in very surfacey ways, doesn't really go through the trouble of explaining where where these ideas and these these images came from. 
Well, I want to go back just very quickly because you're right. We don't have time to talk about all of the, the various differences between Sunni and, and Shia Islam. But I think there's one important difference, and it does come back to this conception of the end times um, between the two groups. And that is this notion of where spiritual authority rests. With the Shia, again, I think that part of this had to do with the fact that they, they had no political power, that they became ostracized so soon um, after the death of Muhammad. There was this notion that religious authority rests in the line of Muhammad, in the heritage of Muhammad. So in other words, that spiritual, that ineffable quality that made Muhammad a prophet. His charism. His, that's right, his charism, absolutely. Uh, was passed on to Ali, his, his nephew and son-in-law from Ali. It was passed to his sons, Hassan and Hussein, uh, and then from, from their sons, and, and this, this line continues. And these characters, these, these designated uh, lines of Muhammad, are referred to as imams. Uh, this is a very complicated word, and Sunnis also use the term imam. In, in Sunni Islam, it just simply means teacher or follower, the person uh, that, you, that you pray behind, uh, the leader of a congregation. But when the Shia use the term imam, they are referring to something wholly different. They are referring to what is often, referred, what, what is often defined as the proof of God on earth. In other words, the person on earth who in their very being represents the living embodiment of, of the revelation of God, represents the, the presence of God on earth. Um, what happens, of course, is that the line of imams comes to an end. Uh, in some Shia groups, it comes to an end after the fifth imam. In some, it comes to end after the seventh. In the main, the, the largest group of, of Shia, uh, represented by the Shia in Iran and Iraq, it comes to, the, comes to end at the twelfth. But nonetheless, there is this conception, theologically speaking, that there must always be an imam on the earth. That, that you cannot ever have existence without the existence of the imam. Because if there is no proof of God on earth, then there is no God on earth. And if there is no God, then there is no earth. So there's this conception that the last imam, whether it's the fifth or the seventh or the twelfth, is omnipresent. It's, it's, he's ever present. He's not physically on earth. He's in hiding somewhere. But that he is waiting for the, for the right time, for the end times, to suddenly reappear and restore justice on earth very much in a messianic way. He like, is known the sec- like the second coming of Jesus. Very much like the second coming of Jesus. He's known as the Mahdi, the, 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 the hidden one, the hidden imam. And the Shia are, in, in that very sense, waiting for those last days, waiting for the Mahdi to arrive. And until he arrives, they will always be the minority. They will never have political control. They will always be the the outcasts and the, the ostracized until the Mahdi arrives and restores the, the true community of Muhammad on earth. So very much in that Christian sense of waiting for Jesus. Now I should say that the Shia, like all Muslims, are also waiting for Jesus to come back. Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they, they await the Messiah's return at the end of time. Uh, but there is some doctrinal confusion. Well, 
Will Jesus and the Mahdi come at the same time? Will Jesus come first and, and pave the way for the Mahdi? Will the Mahdi come first and pave the way for, the, for, for Jesus? Will Jesus focus on the Christians while the Mahdi focuses on the Muslims? You see all of this in, in, the, in the doctrine. It's quite confused as, as any issue with the end times often is in all, in all religions. Uh, but nonetheless, that unique sense of eschatology, I think, um, while certainly Sunni Muslims also believe in, in Jesus as the Messiah, and most Sunnis actually await the Mahdi as well, this becomes uniquely Shia. It's a way for them to think of themselves as a persecuted minority who will, at the end of time, finally be reestablished, that, 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 the, that the Sunni majority, the, the persecutor, will get its comeuppance you know, when, at, the, at the end of time. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is a real distinct difference between the Sunni world and the Shia world. Tell us, if you will, what the, uh, what the word uh, Sunni uh, means, or, from, and, or Sunnah we hear sometimes. Yes, uh, Sunni, Sunni comes from the term Sunnah, and it refers to the traditions of the Prophet. Uh, the Shia comes from the terms, the Shia to Ali, the party of Ali. And I think in those two terms you get a real sense as to where the, the authority rests. In the Sunni world, the authority rests upon the traditions themselves. The Quran, the, the Hadith, which is the oral anecdotes about the words and deeds of Muhammad that were collected two, two, 200 years after Muhammad's death. Um, and, and then, of course, the, the hundreds and hundreds of, of years of commentary upon those, those original traditions. So the Sunni find their source of authority in the traditions themselves. The Shia find their source of authority in the charisma of the Prophet and in the charisma of the Prophet's designated successors, the Imams, who are no longer on earth anymore, except for that last Imam, who is somewhere in hiding. Uh, and so, what happens if you're a Shia and your source of religious authority is not accessible anymore. You cannot, you cannot have any kind of access to him. Essentially what happens is that the representatives of that hidden imam, of the one who is to come, the representatives have that authority upon them themselves. Which is again why in Shia Islam there is far more deference given to the clerical authorities uh, than there is in Sunni Islam. And why in Shia Islam you have this very rigid hierarchy from the grand ayatollahs at the very top to the mid-level clerics, the murjia, the, the persons of emulation, in other words. That authority comes from one's connections, one's spiritual connection to this prophetic line. So this would, would uh, imply then that um, in, in Sunni Islam, uh, resting authority on tradition, that, that anyone who has taken the trouble to study the Quran carefully and, and master the hadith uh, would have uh, the right to, uh, to speak with some measure of authority, and authority would be a variable uh, in its uh, grandeur, depending on the learning and prestige of the school, perhaps, where the... Uh, is it mufti? Uh, would yes, have, um... that's right. A mufti is someone who is capable of issuing a fatwa, which is a legal opinion. In other words, uh, someone who has the authority to make any kind of commentary on either the Quran or the traditions. That's absolutely correct. But it does 
create this, this one little problem in Sunni Islam. And that is that if the tradition is, is what matters and that the, the tradition is where the source of authority comes from, there's really very little room for innovation on that, on that tradition. The tradition tends to remain somewhat static, not wholly static. There is, of course, a great evolution in theology and, and thought in the Sunni world. But there is some limitations to how far that kind of innovation could go. In fact, in Sunni Islam, the very term innovation, bidda, is considered a heretical term. It's a bad thing to have any kind of religious innovation. So a Sunni cleric is one who essentially gets his authority from his learning and from his scholarship uh, on these traditions, but one whose primary, primary function is to simply comment upon the, the traditions themselves, to try to interpret them in some way as to make sense in, in the modern world, but not to uh, create any kind of innovation. That, of course, is completely different from Shia Islam. The Shia also maintain that the, you know, the tradition has its authority, but the real authority rests not with the words on the page, but with the interpreter himself the ayatollah, the imam, however you have it, they, because of their spiritual connection to Muhammad, because of their spiritual connection to the imams, and more specifically to the hidden imam, they have enormous latitude to come up with unique and innovative interpretations on Islam based not on the text themselves, really, but based solely on their own reasoning, on their own independent reasoning, their own judicial mind, if you will. Um, so it allows for much greater diversity in, in Shia theology and in Shia doctrine than you have in Sunni doctrine, which again when we're talking about the modern world and these very complex ideas about how do we reconcile Islamic values with democratic values or enlightenment values, in a very strange way, it becomes much easier for the Shia to do that than it does for the Sunni. Mm -hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> Reza is uh, associated now, but fairly well from a number of uh, public statements with the, the view that the conflict that is taking place in the world just now is not uh, between the Ummah or world Muslim community and the West, but rather uh, a struggle within uh, Islam between uh, modernists and, uh, and reactionaries, and, and that what is underway is something like the, uh, the Reformation of the 15th century, 16th century in, in the West. Uh, this brings me to uh, a point I made just uh, earlier today when we were speaking, Reza and I, at, at lunch, that it was at the time of the, the Reformation that uh, the term Lutheran uh, arose and, uh, and Calvinist to religious leaders whose names became attached to forms of, uh, of Christianity associated with them. Uh, each of them, in, in his way, uh, believed that he was uh, delivering a crucial uh, correction to the practice of uh, Christianity in, in his day, and attracted followers whose uh, tradition uh, lasts down to the present. 
Reza has uh, has added a term not uh, uh, so far as I know uh, in use before uh, before he coined it Khomeinism for the named for the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, as the founder of a novel form of Shia uh, Islam with a strong uh, impulse to transform the practice of Islam around the world uh, in the same way that Calvin and his followers sought to transform the practice of all Christianity. Earlier, uh, there was uh, another individual, uh, Ibn al-Wahhab, for whom the Wahhabi uh, form of, of Islam uh, is named. This is, the, this is, just as uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's form of Islam is a derivation from Shia Islam, Wahhabism, which is dominant in Saudi Arabia and has had a very strong impulse to spread its understandings of, of the tradition, the Sunnah around the world, um, is derived from that, uh, that strand of uh, Islam. So this carries us down a good deal um, closer uh, to the present time, and I, I would like to ask you uh, to, to comment on Wahhabism and uh, Khomeinism and where they came from, where they're going. Well, going back to what we were talking about, the differences between the Sunni and the Shia and where authority rests, Khomeini was really a religious innovator. I sort of talk about Khomeiniism as an Islamic millenarianism, uh, very much like Christian millenarianism, this conception that uh, we, can, we on earth can actually pave the way for Jesus' return. We can build the kingdom of God on earth, and in so doing, the Messiah will, will come back. Um, this was very much what, what Khomeini thought. Um, again, remember, the Shia, as a persecuted minority, had really remained distant from any kind of political authority. The Shia really saw themselves as removed from the world and waiting for the end time, waiting for the Mahdi to, to arrive to restore the kingdom of God on earth. Khomeini had a vastly different idea. His idea was that, no, if we could actually build that kingdom here on earth, then we will usher in the end of times. We will actually usher in the return of the Mahdi. And, and this is very familiar for some of us who, who, are, who know this in, in Christian terms and in Christian theology. And Khomeini's conception of that was, well, what needs to happen is that the state has to be under the rule of the representatives of the Mahdi, the representatives of this Messiah. Who are the representatives? Well, the clerics, the Ayatollahs. They are the ones who speak for the Mahdi. And if, and if they were given complete control over the state, over society, then they would build the perfect society, the perfectly moral society, the society that the Mahdi himself will build when he comes at the end of time. And in doing that on earth, you are essentially compelling the Mahdi's arrival. So it's a, it's a religious revivalism that attempts in many ways to go back to the very religious roots of Shiism, this conception of placing religious authority in the hands of, of the individual, the leader. Well, what Wahhabism does is very much the same idea, but in a uniquely Sunni version. If religious authority rests solely in the tradition, solely in the Quran and the Hadith, then 
everything else, whatever innovations have, have arisen around Islam are heretical forms and must be stamped out. So that's why I refer to Wahhabism as a puritanical uh, sect. It is puritanism, I mean, in its, in its perfect form, this idea that we have to return to the, the unadulterated, pure version of Islam that, that the Prophet Muhammad uh, put into place and strip Islam of, of, of all of its ethnic and religious and cultural um, innovations. And as Puritans, the Wahhabis have done really a marvelous job. I mean, they have been helped by you know, the, the geopolitical dominance of, of, of the Saudi Arabia over the last and oil half money. century and oil money, Funded yes. By oil money. Absolutely. And so they have, they have really managed to spread this Puritan ideology throughout the Muslim world. So really there is, there's really no place on earth anymore with a sizable Muslim population that doesn't have a mosque or a school or, or a charity or a foundation that is funded by, built by, uh, the Saudis, and that uh, really uh, promotes this Wahhabi Puritan Puritanical version of of Islam. So these, I think, are very much a, a response to Islamic modernism, and it goes back to what I, what we were talking before about this internal conflict taking place within Islam and how it represents the Islamic Reformation. This term, you know, I get a, I get a lot of criticism for using this term. It's, I'm not the I'm not the person who coined it, and, and I'm certainly not the only person who writes about it or talks about it. But I get a lot of criticism about it for obvious reasons, and that's because the term Reformation has these. Christian and European connotations that, that are simply not applicable to some of the very complex socio-political conflicts taking place throughout the Arab and Muslim world. But, but I use the term deliberately because what I want an audience to do is go back to the fundamental issue uh, regarding the Christian Reformation. And again, it was what we've been talking about throughout this conversation, and that is, who, where does authority rest? Does it rest in the institutions or does it rest in the individual? This argument is precisely the argument that is raging throughout the Muslim world. And again, you know, there is no single institution in Islam. There is no Vatican that speaks for the world's Muslims. But as we were saying, and this is a particularly Sunni phenomenon, as we were saying, if authority rests in these traditions and the only people who can read or comment on these, in, in, these traditions are the clerics, then the only people who can comment on Islam, the only people who have any authority over the meaning and message of Islam are these clerics. They're the only ones who can really read the texts. They're the only ones who have access to the Quran because for centuries the Quran really could not be translated uh, from Arabic because it would lose its, its power as the Quran. And that sense of authority is precisely what had, had sort of kept um, Islam in, in, in many ways in their iron grip. Really no one outside of this very small group of men were able to uh, discuss or, or comment upon Islam in any authoritative way. 
That is precisely what has been changing over the last century or so uh, for a number of reasons, not just because of advances in literacy and education throughout the Muslim world, but also because of greater access uh, through the internet, through, through publishing, uh, of new and innovative ideas and sources of, of uh, knowledge and information about Islam from not just clerics around the world, but even from non-clerics, from lay people. And that sense of individualism has really transformed Islam over the past century in profound ways and has really created this conflict. And I'll, and I'll give you the perfect example of that very briefly. You know, we talk about bin Laden a lot and about this movement that, that he has created that is sometimes referred to as bin Ladenism or jihadism. But what we tend to forget is that bin Laden is in many ways the poster child of the Islamic Reformation. He's not a counter to the Reformation. He is a product of the Reformation. This is a man who is saying in a, in a very public way that authority rests in the individual. That's precisely why he issues these fatwas, which he is not allowed to do, only a cleric is allowed to do. That's why he, he issues these jihads, which again, he's not allowed to do, only a cleric is allowed to, to lead a jihad. That's because what he is trying to do is set himself in opposition to these institutions very much like Luther, uh, very much like the, the, the Christian uh, Reformation radicals, Thomas Munster, Hans Hutt, um, it, to say that, that authority rests in the individual and it's the individual that matters. Well, that's precisely what the modernists are saying. That's precisely what Muslim reformists are saying. That's precisely what I am saying. So in many ways, we are, as awkward as it sounds, on the same side of the Reformation. But as one would expect, when religious authority passes from the hands of institutions to the hands of individuals, is that you are going to have wildly divergent views of, of what that religious interpretation means. And a great part of this conflict, this internal conflict we are seeing in the Muslim world, is a direct result of that new source of authority, the individual, instead of the, in, the institution, when it comes to the meaning and message of Islam. The, uh, it has been uh, alleged that the, the codex, this form of, of uh, the presentation of printed material, cut pages, sewed together on one side and printed on both sides, uh, arose, it certainly did arise around the time that, uh, that Christianity arose, and it has been suggested that it may have been a Christian invention because uh, almost all of the earliest codices are actually uh, Christian texts. Another uh, technological um, innovation uh, was the development of printing, which uh, coincided um, and had an enormous impact on the uh, Reformation. Perhaps it will be the internet as a, a form of communication that will, uh, will play the comparable role in the, in the change that Reza is describing in, in world Islam. But as he uh, very astutely points out, individualism is to be distinguished carefully from tolerance. You can have an authoritarian uh, religion that is is tolerant and uh, gentle, and you can have uh, an individual uh, empowering himself whose vision is quite um, intolerant. I have here uh, Jimmy Carter's 
new book, Our Endangered Values, which includes uh, what I found a rather um, uh, interesting checklist of uh, what distinguishes fundamentalists of any sort within any uh, religion from uh, from modernists. And before he, he gives this little list, he reminisces about the time when uh, he, a, a lifelong Southern Baptist, now elected president, received a visit from the president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the uh, Oval Office. He writes, this had been a routine ceremony for many years, especially when the president of the United States happened to be a Baptist. I congratulated him on his new position as president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and we spent a few minutes exchanging courtesies. As he and his wife were leaving, he said, we are praying, Mr. President, that you will abandon secular humanism as your religion. This was a shock to me. I considered myself to be a loyal and traditional Baptist and had no idea what he meant. Later, after attending services with his own uh, pastor, uh, he found out about a change that had taken place in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, uh, bringing to the fore a number of uh, modifications of what had been its, uh, its traditional way of exercising authority. For example, a clause was introduced uh, uh, that read, Lay leadership of the church is unbiblical when it weakens the pastor's authority as ruler of the church. Changes of this sort uh, can occur or can be uh, revoked within any uh, given religious group. Here is his checklist, though, because I think it's an interesting contribution to this. And uh, as I say, it it applies across the board. Almost invariably, fundamentalist movements are led by authoritarian males who consider themselves to be superior to others and within religious groups have an overwhelming commitment to subjugate women and to dominate their fellow believers. The uh, Ibrahim Jafari, the uh, the, the, uh, until recently the president of uh, of Iraq in the provisional government. Uh, referred disparagingly to the uh, insurgents in that country as uh, takfiri. The the Muslim word for heretic or unbeliever is kafir. And a takfir is uh, someone who says, is a Muslim who says to another Muslim, uh, you are a kafir, you are a heretic. Uh, This, uh, I found a very interesting isolation of a pattern of behavior on the part of a, of a, of a Muslim, obviously in a, in a crucial position in his country at a crucial time in its history. But let me go on with Carter's list. Although fundamentalists usually believe that the past is better than the present, they retain certain self-beneficial aspects of both their historic religious beliefs and of the modern world. There is a picking and choosing then, and it's a self-interested smorgasbord decision. Fundamentalists draw clear distinctions between themselves as true believers and others convinced that they are right and that anyone who contradicts them is ignorant and possibly evil. Fundamentalists are militant in fighting against any challenge to their beliefs. They are often angry and sometimes resort to verbal or even physical abuse against those who interfere with the implementation of their agenda. And finally, 
fundamentalists tend to make their self-definition increasingly narrow and restricted to isolate themselves, to demagogue emotional issues, and to view change, cooperation, negotiation, and other efforts to resolve differences as signs of weakness. What he means in this last point is that we mustn't assume that everyone is hoping uh, for what I announced as my hope at the beginning, a common uh, a destination, a coalition lar large enough and broad enough uh, to include everyone. There are, on the contrary, many who, as soon as this begins to happen, want to introduce some new uh, cause of distinction, some new passion that, that then can be used uh, as a, a point to which you can retreat and assert your superiority uh, over those who otherwise might be content to make some sort of accommodation uh, with you. Does any of this bear on uh, what you've just been... Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I would add to, to that list is that fundamentalism is almost by definition a reactionary movement. It's not an independent ideology. There is no such thing as just fundamentalism as itself. Fundamentalism, to, to really define itself, needs to set itself in opposition to something, as a reaction to something. And this has, of course, a lot to do with the very history of this, of this term. As most of you know, fundamentalism began very early in the 20th century as a distinctly American uh, and distinctly Protestant uh, reaction to the secularization and, and modernization of American society uh, and really as a result of, of the First World War. Um, and so it, it, this was a group of, of Protestants who were deliberately reacting to this rapid secularization, rapid modernization of society by reverting to what they referred to as the fundamentals of their faith, hence the term fundamentalist. And of course, chief amongst those fundamentals of their faith was this conception of a literal, uh, literal reading of the Bible, um, which really was not in any... Uh, overwhelming sense that the, the, the majority conception of, 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 of the, the, the mythology and the literature of the Bible up to that time. But again, even this notion of reading the Bible as literal fact was a reaction to the, the evolution and, and, and the, the ascendancy of, of, of scientific conceptions of history and this notion that for something to be true, it must be objectively verifiable. Well, if that's the case, then the Bible must be objectively verifiable in order for it to be true. Uh, and this, this conception really led to a lot of this literalism that, that we see so much amongst fundamentalism. So, and in, in many ways, this is true, I think, of, of all fundamentalisms, whether it's Hindu fundamentalism or Jewish fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism, that these are primarily reactionary ideologies. Now, I think this is a very important point to keep in mind because from the, the narrow perspective of history, if we look at what has been taking place in, in uh, not just religious traditions but in the political realm as well uh, in the United States, in the Muslim world and, and really across the board in, in a whole host of different um, uh, countries and, and different societies 
one could make an argument that fundamentalism is on the rise and that it is ascending and that you know that this is an indication that people are becoming uh, more militantly religious uh, and, and and more reactionary uh, and and putting aside these these conceptions of rationalism and secularism that are supposed to be the defining characteristics of the evolution of our society in one way or another well I think yes from the narrow perspective that that is a that is a, a valid argument to make but if you think of fundamentalism again as primarily a reaction, as a reactionary movement, then there is another way to think about this as well, that the rise of fundamentalism is essentially the result of the greater rise of secularism and modernization and reform, that as society continues to push ahead in, in progressivism, that there are going to be more and more people who perhaps because they feel left behind, are going to react at even larger and greater levels to, to this natural evolution of society. So, in many ways, the rise of fundamentalism might signal a good thing. It might, it might actually be a, a result of the rapid progression of society that, that we are seeing um, if one expands one's perspective, I think, a little more historically. Before we uh, return to questions, I, I would invite you, Reza, to, to say something about what I, I believe is the, the, the less uh, reactive, the more um, positive, I'll call it very loosely, aspect um, of Islam and of religion in general, even, in your book, and, and that is uh, Sufism and, and what it might represent. Well, we could we could spend the rest of the day talking about Sufism, and I still don't think I'd be able to get it across well enough. Um, I dedicated a whole chapter to this in, in in the book, which kind of lays it out, I think, in 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 a clearer way than I could talk about in the next few few minutes. But you know. I often say that Islam is not a missionary religion. Uh, in other words, it's not a religion who, th- whose core is this conception of, of making disciples of all nations. But of course, Islam has spread in, in, in this you know, very missionary way throughout, throughout the centuries. But that has primarily been a result of Sufism. It is the Sufis who, who have become the Muslim missionaries. And the reason for this is that there really is no such thing as Sufism. We can't talk about Sufism as though it represents something. Uh, Sufism is essentially a perspective about Islam, and as such, it's open to a whole host of, of, uh, of ideologies and religious traditions. It very easily absorbs these, these cultural and, and religious thoughts into itself under this larger uh, umbrella of Sufism. And the reason for that is that the Sufis begin as all mystical religions do, whether it's Christian mysticism or Jewish mysticism, with the conception that religion is only the starting point. Uh, The Sufis talk about religion as an outer shell that must be discarded before one can actually have an understanding of God. That religion uh, provides signposts towards God, but that Sufism is the actual path to God. It's not just pointing the way to God, it's moving one towards God. And that kind of uh, conception opens itself up to, I think, greater universalism and greater pluralism because it really doesn't matter which religion you start with if it's an outer shell that must be discarded anyway. One of the great metaphors of Sufism is that it's, you think of, of a mountain 
and that God is at the peak of this mountain. And there are many trails that lead to the peak. Uh, some trails are better than others. Some are easier than others. Some are more sensical than, than others. But it really doesn't matter because they all eventually lead to the same point, to, to the zenith where, where God is. They all eventually lead to God. So it doesn't matter which path you take. But you must be on a path, and you must be moving forward on that path from one stage to another. And that really represents, I think, the totality of what Sufism stands for. It doesn't reject the traditions, it doesn't reject the Quran, it doesn't reject you know, even orthodoxy in, in many ways. It just sees it as the beginning, and that one has to actually move from there and, and physically move towards God in order to actually really understand the meaning uh, behind what Islam is. There's, a, there's another great, really, real uh, wonderful quote from a Sufi master about, for instance, the Quran or the scriptures and about what the scripture means. Of course, Sufis revere the Quran as the word of God, but they, be, they see it as a, as a love letter from God to human beings. And as the, as the great Sufi master once said, what's the purpose of reading a love letter when you're already in the presence of the beloved? Well, that's a, that's a, a lovely note to transition on. I think uh, those who attempt uh, to impose personal control uh, over, over mystery always find themselves in a condition of anxiety. And those who who manage somehow to find a way to, to surrender uh, to it can, uh, can achieve something closer to peace. The standard greeting among practicing Muslims, as you may know, is salam alaikum. Salam means peace. It, it is the same word as uh, shalom uh, in Hebrew. And peace can, can mean peace uh, and well-being. It can also uh, mean the, the absence of, of war. It can be surrender and and quiet and the abandonment of of, of pointless uh, resistance uh, antagonism among human beings or or foolish pride in the thought that uh, that everything can finally be brought under the control of one simple uh, human mind. I went to church this morning. Uh, in Trinity Episcopal down the street here, and uh, the hymn, one of the hymns sung, uh, was a hymn derived from Hebrew scripture, from chapter six of the book of Isaiah, in which the the prophet receives his calling, and a coal is uh, placed upon his lips, and and the presence of God uh, with smoke and thunder fills the, the temple, and the words "Holy, holy, holy" uh, are heard. The third verse of, uh, of that hymn is one that Jews, uh, Christians, and, and Muslims could all find in perfect uh, harmony with their religion, I think, because of this aspect of, uh, of humility. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the sinful human eye thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power in love and purity. Thank you, Reza. We will now take...
Excuse me? We'll take the, uh, I think the questions are from the, from, the, uh, from the microphone, right? He's an intelligent person. I was addressing him. Thank you. Yes, uh, to bring this up to... I just want to say, that was the best heckle I've ever got. <laughs> Fantastic. Bring this up to last week and uh, religion and politics. I wondered if I could uh, ask your uh, response to uh, two paragraphs from an article by Gabriel Ash, which uh, received a couple days ago. Public rejection of corruption is no doubt a major explanation for the rise of Hamas, but so is religion. Palestinian society has turned increasingly to religion in response to the hardships of daily life under Israeli occupation. At the same time, it is hard not to credit the religious bond and commitment for Hamas strength and ability to resist the lure of corruption. It is fashionable in the West, especially at the center and left of the political discourse, to compare our fundamentalists with, our, our fundamentalists with theirs. While there is truth in this comparison, it misses quite a lot. Our fundamentalists, from George Bush to Pat Robertson, are fundamentally corrupt. Their religion is a racket. On the Muslim side, the opposite seems often to be the case. Far from being a shakedown, religion over there is an antidote to corruption. And the last paragraph, if I may. While Palestinian society turned more religious, Hamas turned more ecumenical. In these elections, the candidates for Hamas' new political party Reform and change included women, Christians, and moderates. Hamas is now a larger political tent of Palestinian nationalism with a strong religious orientation. It encompasses radicals, moderates, and conservatives with a variety of perspectives. Thank you. Incredibly astute analysis, not just of the, the rise of Hamas as a political group in, in Palestine, which is hard, hard for, I think, a lot of uh, Westerners to, to swallow, had almost nothing to do with Israel at all. The overwhelming majority of Palestinians, some 78 to 79 percent of Palestinians, have uh, just are absolutely fed up with the cycle of violence in, in, in uh, Israel-Palestine, want a two-state solution, have no interest in this conception uh, of, of driving the, the Jews into the sea, uh, just want an independent Palestine living side by side with an independent Israel, as most people want after 50 years of, of not constant violence. So it wasn't Hamas's uh, stance on Israel or even their religious ideology that brought them to power. A vote for Hamas was a vote against Fatah, a, a uh, group that despite hundreds of millions of dollars in aid over the last two decades uh, has been mired in corruption and ineptitude and, and, uh, and I think that the, the result uh, was pretty obvious in, in this last elections. But there's a larger issue here and that's this, this question of the role that religion plays in society. Religion, of course, is an incredibly powerful language with which to frame 
uh, one's social or political or economic uh, views, ideologies. It, it really allows uh, a way to take these very complex issues and put them in very simplistic terms. Uh, we, you know, the best example of this, of course, is after September 11th, in which the, the uh, president and, and many, a large number of, of the American press uh, essentially encapsulated this unprecedented uh, global conflict that was taking place that had social and, and political and economic um, uh, factors to it by simply saying, well, it's a war between good and evil. Well, that's simple. I mean, anyone can make that decision. Who's going to choose evil? I mean, it's a very simple process. Yes. Show of hands. Yes. It's very, very, very easy to put things that way. And that's, that's precisely what religion does. And particularly, of course, for marginalized communities, oppressed communities, uh, whether those are, are you know, Christian Catholic communities in Latin America or whether they are Muslim communities in, in Palestine. And I think particularly with regard to the Arab world, you know, for the past 50 years or so, uh, because of the autocrats in the region, the, these president, presidents for life, these monarchies that have uh, essentially uh, created what the, what the UN Arab Human Development Report refer, refers to as a legitimacy of blackmail, by convincing the Western world that their anti-democratic policies are necessary because if it weren't for them, then the fundamentalists would take over. So in other words, there's only two choices in the Arab world. There's autocracy and there's theocracy. And if the people were given a choice between a liberal, uh, democratic society in which their opinions and their values actually matter and there is a rule of law and a separation of powers and a fundamentalist theocracy, of course they would choose theocracy. They're Muslims. What else? I mean, what, what, what else would they choose? So that sense of, of you know, legitimacy of blackmail has created a situation in which there is no room for any kind of legitimate opposition in, in large parts of the Arab world, in Egypt, in, in Morocco, in Jordan, uh, even in the Palestinian territories. And when you outlaw legitimate opposition, then you, you create a situation in which the only open space in society, the only free space in society, is the mosque. And of course, that's where the opposition is going to coalesce. So it shouldn't be surprising that the, that opposition becomes religious in nature. Now, the really interesting thing about this, of course, is what happens when a, a, an oppositional force, a, a religious oppositional force, is suddenly given the political voice they've been clamoring for. And that, I think, is what, what we are, are going to have to wait and see. I personally think that this is as strange as it may sound, the best thing that could have happened, uh, not just for the Palestinians, but for the whole of the Arab world, and quite frankly, for the, for the peace process. Israel has been saying for, for years now that they cannot negotiate with the Palestinians because there is no, there is no real legitimate body to negotiate with. They've got, a, they've got a pretty good point in that sense. So what Palestine needs to do is fix Palestine first. And that's precisely what this process is going to do. I think for the first time, Arab politicians are having to do something they've never really bothered doing before, actually earn their votes. Um, and, and we're going to see a profound change, not just uh, in the Palestinian territories, but across the Arab world, as these formerly banned 
uh, opposition groups are allowed to actually participate in elections, are given the opportunity to put their agendas to the people in a way in which in the United States we have complete access to. The difference, the, last comment here, the difference between you know, um, you know, American fundamentalism, however you want it, or, and Muslim fundamentalism, isn't so much in their aspirations. Both groups want to inject society with their own moral values. The difference is in the access that they have to the public. In the United States, we give an enormous access to these groups and allow them to share their views with the American public and then it's up to us to accept them or reject them. In the Muslim world, that, that access is not allowed in any way and so it, it's driven underground, it becomes radicalized, it becomes militarized and then we're surprised that, that this is the situation. Um, so again, I think some very exciting things are happening politically in, 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 uh, in the Arab world. I think the, uh, the, the victory of Hamas also makes another uh, relevant point, which is that nationalism is not necessarily always um, benign and uh, always the solution to problems that, uh, that religion uh, poses. Uh, take, for example, the, the recently uh, noticed case of uh, the novelist Orhan Pamuk, this is a, a, a Turkish novelist who was hauled uh, uh, into court for the crime of uh, besmirching the honor of, uh, of the Turkish people by, by criticizing uh, Turkey while in Switzerland. He was not uh, criticized for doing something against uh, his Muslim faith, but for, uh, doing, for betraying his uh, Turkish nationality. Uh, the, the Fatah movement was uh, a, f a form of Palestinian nationalism, but it, its innocence wasn't guaranteed by that uh, fact uh, alone. In, in Iraq, uh, in a speech about uh, Iraq, rather, President Bush told the story of an Iraqi who held up his purple finger after voting uh, and said, I am not a Sunni, I am not a, Sh a Shia, I am uh, an Iraqi. And that's the assumption that uh, Americans tend to make because we're so, so comfortable and really so proud, not without reason, of being able to say, well, you're a Jew, I am a Christian, but we are both Americans and that's what matters. That's what we think uh, will be the happy outcome uh, in Iraq. But we forget sometimes that in the name of, uh, of fanatic nationalism, terrible crimes um, have been uh, committed. So it comes down to monitoring the performance of, uh, of a given group. If the group uh, running the country, as uh, is the case now in, in Turkey, uh, regards itself as, uh, as Muslim, allow it to do so and watch and see what happens. In, in Turkey, the, uh, the Islamic ruling party has been far kinder uh, to, the, to the Kurds the largest minority in the uh, country than the secular nationalists were when they were uh, in power. What will happen now uh, that uh, a Muslim-flavored uh, party has come to power among the Palestinians? Time will tell, but it certainly deserves uh, as much of a chance as, as any uh, secular party ha has been given. <clears throat> Professor Aslan, you started out this afternoon painting a picture of a a rather uh, passive, tolerant, and you ended up with the Sufis, gentle, thoughtful people. And yet, 
the history of um, the borders between Islam and Christianity is anything but that. We have the blonde Europeans in Kosovo who I don't believe ran to Islam on their own, but there was forced conversions. So there's a history of that. So I'm a little confused. Is this such a kind and gentle religion, or is it a religion of domination? Um, the Sufis, I don't believe, are very well received today within Islam. No, it's very true. Uh, it's neither. It's a religion. And a religion is nothing more than merely a language, the language with which a, a community of faith communicates with one another. Um, and so, like any language, especially one made up of, of symbols and metaphors, it could be understood in a variety of ways, either milit militantly or, or, or you know, in, in pacifist ways. So, you know, as a scholar, I'm loath to sit here and say, well, this isn't Islam and that is. I mean, no, no scholar would say something like that, especially of, of religion. A religion is almost by definition interpretation, and unfortunately, uh, by definition, all interpretations are valid. However, there is, I think, a difference between looking at what people of a religion have done and what the religion itself uh, emphasizes. I mean, I think most of us recognize that there is an incredible difference between the, the teachings and the message of Jesus than of the, the horrific and bloody history of, of Christianity. Um, the same, of course, is true with regard to Islam and really of, of any religious tradition. So I think we must be careful about the ways in which we use a, the history of an empire or the history of a state to, that, that follows or that uses religion as its ideological underpinning uh, to comment on the religion itself. Uh, if that were the case, then one could simply say that all religion is useless and, and bloody. Uh, and, and certainly that, that argument has been made, uh, but I don't think that it's a legitimate argument. Um, really, I, you know, I, without getting in further in that way. There's, yeah. there's, I think, a counter uh, uh, Santayana point to be made. Santayana is famously the man who said, those who do not learn the lessons of history are condemned to repeat them. But, but those who suppose that by learning the lessons of history they can read the future uh, are as bad off. <laughs> The past performance uh, of any of our nations or any of our uh, religions, uh, if we list uh, the, the, the worst aspects of it, would cause us all to despair. What we're seeking is, is the, uh, a possible version of all of these groups, which are so large that they're surely not going to disappear. Can we imagine a path uh, forward? If we can, then, then we have, as, as a planet, a fighting chance. In, in 1951, the, uh, the respected Protestant journal Christian Century published an article with the title, Pluralism, National Menace. Why was pluralism a national menace? Uh, because this was, uh, of course, very early uh, during the long-running uh, Red Scare, there were uh, thriving communist parties in France, uh, Italy, and Spain. And here in the United States, you had what the editors of Christian Century regarded as a deeply uh, sinister emerging country within a country consisting of Catholic schools, Catholic hospitals, Catholic sports leagues, uh, Catholic 
professional associations of doctors and, and, uh, and lawyers all uh, taking orders from a foreign potentate, it was really quite sinister. So they thought, well, there wasn't uh, nothing to go on. The question was, would it be possible for uh, Roman Catholicism in its complexity to come up with a version of itself that uh, the Protestant majority of the United States uh, could live with? That happened. And now pluralism seems as American as apple pie. Uh, and, and, and fear has been transferred uh, to a new group of more uh, recent immigrants and a new... Uh, foreign menace that seems to, to link them. So it's not that what, what the questioner said didn't happen. Of course there were forced conversions, and of course there has been terrible slaughter uh, in, the, in the course of religious uh, history. The, the question is whether uh, a path uh, forward can be found. And it, this is why, for me, someone like Reza Aslan, and, the, and not he alone, but the, the emerging bicultural American Muslim uh, population is potentially of such uh, historic significance. America is very influential even now, even at uh, the lowest ebb that we've ever been in international prestige. Still, we are watched, we are noticed and copied. And what any group within our population does matters to their counterparts abroad. What American Jews do is overwhelmingly important uh, in Israel. And what American Catholics do is very important in Rome. What American Muslims do is going to have, in my judgment, very large, uh, uh, unpredictable, but uh, it's almost inevitable that it will have some, uh, some impact around the world. Absolutely.